Before we start tonight's episode, we want to inform our listeners of a prize giveaway for your chance to win one of five 12-month memberships to the Australian Hunters Club. Jump over to our website, endlesspursuit.com.au, click on the links to our socials and follow the instructions. Best of luck and now let's get into the show. You're listening to the Endless Pursuit Podcast, where we talk about all things hunting and the great outdoors. Let's get into it. No, I prefer it's go time. G'day listeners, we have joining us tonight Jason Montez, who's just come back from a extremely exciting hunting trip that I'm keen to hear about. And as always, we have Dodge with us. And let's get into it, guys. Uh, briefly off air, we were just talking about how many antlers you have there, Jason. Do you want to fill the listeners in on what you just told us? Yeah, definitely. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. I, um, I've actually was just only talking because I saw Dodge's uh, moose, chandelier, antler, light pendant, whatever you want to call it. Not much of a pendant. It's massive. And um, I was just saying, yeah, I spoke to um, a fella from – where's it from again, Dodge? What, what's his company? Uh, rapid effects rapid effects and i spoke to him because i've i've got a 500 kilo bulker bag full of red deer antlers which um yeah i want to make a big chandelier for i've got a big shed and a trophy room getting built at the moment so i thought i may as well use them my plan was always to sort of make a big christmas tree out of them and have enough to make a christmas tree out of antlers but i figured maybe a chandelier would be more more suitable for actually enjoying it 12 months of the year as opposed to one month of the year yeah that's a good idea did you uh how did you come across the antlers um they're all actually my casties from my own my own red deer i've got um a smallish herd of, of red deer and i've had them since i moved into my place where i live um since 2012 it's been so it's been 10 years now and i've given quite a few away and have a few scattered around the house but I, um, yeah, I've just been collecting them over the years and never really known what to do with them. I knew one day I'll have a, green, a great idea on, on what to maybe do with all these antlers. So I'm glad I kept them because I've got a, yeah, great idea now for the trophy room. What do you do with the reds? What are they for? Originally, well, originally I was pretty lucky. I, I, I bought this place and, you know, obviously loving deer back then as well. And the guy who I bought it from had red deer on here. So it actually worked out pretty well. I was already deer fenced and, you know, part of the deal was I get a few of these red deer off him. And then I pretty much was just uh, planned to just have them just to have them because, you know, like most of us hunters and fishermen and, you know, outdoors people, we just like looking at deer. And then that sort of got me into maybe doing something where I could get a bit of a return um, on my money. So I started actually velveting the deer, which was good. It's quite uh, quite difficult to do when you're busy. You really need to have the time to be able to velvet deer properly. And I found after a couple of years, I was just causing myself more stress as opposed to enjoying the deer. So then I just stopped doing that. And now I've just got deer because I like to look at it. Can I ask what velveting the deer is i know obviously what a velvet when, when the antlers go into velvet but what what do you mean by velveting the deer for our listeners yeah so uh velveting the deer is um the stags obviously is pretty much cutting off their their antlers 
while they're still in a growth period, while they're still a, a live tissue, if you want to put it like that. Um, put them into a crush, ring blocking them, doing it all correctly. I was accredited for it, had a vet check over all my work and signed me off for what I, that I could actually do it properly. And then once I cut them off, I then can sell that to different types of buyers. A lot of the buyers um, seem to use them for all different types of uses, but mainly sort of medicinal uses, I guess. Deer velvet is, is in tablet form is pretty popular when it comes even in America, North America for, you know, bone recovery or joint recovery and things like that. So I had all different types of buyers. But yeah, that's pretty much the process of, in short, of, of velvet in deer. Have you ever used it yourself? No, at one hundred and ten dollars a kilo, I wasn't going to waste it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> freeze it down and uh, turn a powder. So, what do they do? They turn it into powder, yeah, and then make it into tablets, I suppose. I, I believe they do that. I believe also um, a lot of the Asian buyers, Chinese and Korean, they would. I think they pretty much slice it really, really thin, and they'll put it in their tea and stuff like that. Is what I've seen. But yeah, I think that if you're going to buy it over the counter, it's powdered down into like a a capsule, a tablet. And you said 110 or so a kilo. Is that normal value, peak market, low market? What's it? Well, that seems to be the the mid to high end of the market. Uh, well, that was, you know, seven, eight years ago. It could have changed. I'm not really involved in it much anymore. And what – so a bit of background. I'm actually heading up to Jason's house in a couple of – I'm going to say weeks, but it's probably more likely going to be months because he knows how busy I am – to do some fencing for some said deer up there. I'm looking forward to that, but – a lot of our listeners and even myself, I've done a little bit of deer handling, I suppose, but not in sort of a pen situation. How are they to handle? Like what What do you need sort of infrastructure if someone was to going to – can you just put them in a normal yard? Mm, definitely not. No, they're, 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 they are interesting to handle. Um, they're pretty confronting. You know, when you've got a big stag looking at you straight in the eyes, grind his teeth, it tends to sort of make you worry a little bit. Heard some interesting stories about uh, some close encounters with people in the yards. I've always been quite fortunate with my deer that they've always been pretty well behaved. And especially when I was yarding them, often I would even just yard them just to yard them so they get used to the yards as opposed to leaving them out in the paddock for 12 months and then yarding them, putting them in a crush and trying to do all this work. So I guess like any livestock really, if you if you get them used to a bit of a routine, it's not that bad. When it comes to yards, no, not just normal yards, or mostly deer yards would be undercover and enclosed. And the reason why is you want it dark. You don't want too much light in there. And all your, you know, your your panels aren't see-through. It's all solid. So just ply, things like that. So they, they can't actually look for a little hole to try and get through because if you've ever experienced yarding deer, you'd be surprised. They would see a hole that they would never fit through. But if you got them in the yard and they see that hole, they will try to jump through it. I think that's an interesting one there because I, th- I was reading an article. It's probably only about uh, in the last six to eight weeks. And I think it was down in Victoria, but an elderly sort of fella um, was gored by his own deer and it got stuck up in the fence. And I believe him and his wife uh, were trying to free it. And uh, I think, unfortunately, he passed away from it i think she was severely injured because i know there was talk about putting in some more strict legislation around keeping and handling them because of that incident and uh, i don't know the full details but 
I can sort of imagine it with you talking about coming face to face with the with the stag and knowing the size that they can get to. That's pretty full on. Yeah, it definitely can be. Um, you, you, I mean, just like any livestock, though. Really, I mean, big livestock, no different cattle. You just want to have your, your wits about you and and just make sure that you know safety's first and don't become complacent. I guess complacency is a big issue when it comes to handling livestock, especially big animals in yards. But no, it, it's it's like what you're saying with that incident with that um with that farmer uh, i think it was in victoria you said it's a reason why it's sort of a, a no-no to have stags or bucks as pets a lot of times it's you know i had a had a pet hind here she was great her name was dit you could pat her you could do you know she'd come up to you and and rub her face against yours type of thing but you know you got to remember if you if that if she had antlers if she was a big stag just something as innocent as a sneeze could mean an antler to the face so yeah you definitely don't want to be too close when it comes to to a stag you really want your stags to have that respect where they keep away from you but also you don't want wild deer in your in your yards or in your paddock that run at 100k an hour through a fence every time they see you and has it only been red stags or reds in general or have you played with other species no only reds um i did have a really nice uh, stag that had a lot of elk in him and you could tell he's, you know, his big sort of uh, white rump and um, the the way his antlers were. I've got his cast antlers. They're, they're amazing. I gave one to my brother, lucky him, and I've got one here. He had a double brow tine on each side one year, which is really cool. But that's about it. I haven't had fallow or anything else like that. I've thought about it in the past and maybe I might in the future, but for now, just the reds. Do you think it makes you – Does it? I guess the question I'm asking is, do you think it – adds to your ability to understand deer when hunting them and you can sort of pattern their movements or have a bit more of an in-depth knowledge of them as a species? I think that maybe I can have a bit of knowledge on what they do in certain patterns, but there's definitely no knowledge like actually hunting them in the wild, in my opinion. There's no way that, you know, I've heard I've heard both sides and, and I've heard a lot of deer farmers talk about deer like they know every movement because they farm them, but they really, they don't hunt them. So I think someone who actually hunts them and understands a deer species in the wild would have a lot more knowledge on what they'll do over a deer farmer every day of the week. And, and where you are, I know where you are, but there is some wild deer around that area. Has that yeah. impacted your fence herd? Uh, no, not really. When I first bought this place, I did actually, funny enough, have two absolute monster red stags jump in. And I've got, I'm sure I've got a photo of them. But they were huge. And I thought, my first thought was, oh, good, I'll shoot one of those. Um, but then my second thought was, no, don't do that. They've jumped in. Hopefully, they don't jump out and they'll just add to your herd. And the next morning, they'll go on. Um, so, but saying that, I don't really, I haven't really seen any reds running around here. Um, there are a few fallow. Uh, it's part of the reason why I'm reconsidering some of my fencing to take down some of my deer fencing, just put normal cattle fencing and have some of these fellow jump in for, <laughs> for a bit of fun. But um, no, I haven't really had anything else apart from those uh, red deer, you know, nine, ten years ago. Is there any legalities around having deer as if, you know, from a farm point of view? No different to having any other livestock, really. The only thing that you've got to understand with having deer is if you have a deer get out, it's very hard to get them back in. And also once a deer gets out, it seems like it's just – fair game for any neighbour to shoot them. 
sometimes I've had that discussion with neighbours where, you know, because I have had a tree come down on a fence before and I've had a few deer get out and I've got them all back. But I sort of, you know, politely said to a couple of neighbours who were seeing the deer, can you leave them? They are my livestock. It's no different if your horse came into my property. I wouldn't shoot it. So don't just shoot the deer. Give me some time to get them back. And I think when I put it like that, they understood. Um, but, it, yeah, it seems like it's if, if a deer gets out, it's fair game. What else do you have to play with out there? I know you had some little piglets last time I was there. I do. You still rock on those? I do have pigs. And I only only just before I went to Kyrgyzstan, I had, uh, there's another eight pigs there, eight piglets. So, yeah, I've got a lot more pigs than what I really originally wanted. They've sort of gone a little bit, I wouldn't say out of hand, um, but i just not eating through them quick enough, really, and not making enough salami to to uh, justify the numbers at the moment. But like I was saying earlier on, once my shed is up and I get a cool room set up, I think I'll be get, going through those numbers a bit. Do you do, talking about salamis, It's um, what, what nationality are you? What's your background? Uh, Uruguay, so South American from Uruguay. Just a little... Uh, backstory and a bit of history. I went and I got invited to dinner with Jason. I don't think Michael was there, but uh, no, there was. Yeah, Jason was there, a couple of other boys, his brother, and we had Asada. Asada. How do you pronounce it? Asado. Okay, so I'll pronounce it Australian way. Asada. <laughs> I think that's and, a drug testing, uh, mate. You're not playing in the NRL and doping. <laughs> you need to put an O on the end of that word, mate. No A. Asada. So. The only thing I can remember from – I think if I was to describe asado, I would just say salt because <laughs> we left your brother in charge of the level of salt. <laughs> yeah. And it was an assault on my tongue. Mate, he, sure. uh, that was not a great introduction to eating uh, an asado, unfortunately for you, mate. <laughs> you would have been drinking water that night, that's for sure. We'll have to do another one. Still am. I'll take you up on that. Yeah. Now, another thing uh, I wanted to touch on is we've got a few friends in common and uh, one of your you've got a nickname which is huffy a lot of the the boys know you as huffy yeah where did that nickname come from i get asked that a lot um mate oh, i got that nickname when i was in year three or something i don't even know how it started it just stuck and then everyone through school and high school used to call me huffy and then well sort of start of high school and then due to my brother daniel who's uh, a few years older than me, he was at the high school first. Everyone called him Montez. So Huffy went out the door and everyone started calling me just Little Montez. So sort of that stuck. And it wasn't only, you know, before the crazy social media days, maybe MySpace was around, but everyone, when you wanted to do something, whether it was fishing or hunting, used to be really active on forums. And I joined spearfishing forums and, you know, trying to find out what it is about this spearfishing that I'm starting to get interested in. And you had come... Uh, you had to make up a nickname. So naturally, I just went, oh, well, I'll just use Huffy. And then from there, mate, everyone that comes to spearfishing knows me as Huffy. I'd, uh, I remember the first time I ever won in my grade a spearfishing comp, they had a trophy for me and they said, oh, and the winner is uh, Jason Montez. And a few people looked around going, who is Jason Montez? And I stood up and they going, oh, Huffy. So, yeah, mate, I, I don't know how it started, but it's definitely stuck. And now with, with hunting and, and, and spearfishing and most of those, most of my mates are through spearfishing, it's uh, the nicknames come back. And when we're talking spearfishing, like we're not talking sort of low level here. You were the president of the San Susie Dolphins, which is a spearfishing club here in Sydney. Yes. And a pretty popular one. So Yeah, best club out there, mate. Um, no, but I was I was involved in that club since I was around 17. And as I said, pretty much everyone that I know 
and most of the, you know, my close, close mates are all through spearfishing and stuff like that. And then, you know, funny enough, the amount of spearfishermen that are also hunters or have become hunters is huge. You know, the amount of guys now who I still talk to or friends on Facebook, you know, maybe not close, close mates, but we know each other and they're all, all their photos from holding up fish from eight years ago on their profile photos are all now with deer. So it's funny, you know, it's, it seems like it's, they go hand in hand, which naturally makes sense because after a while and you spearfish for a bit, you sort of uh, get over diving in winter or, you know, crappy conditions and things like that. So you go, well, I may as well pick up a rifle or a bow and go chase deer. And I'm quite an experienced spearfisher myself. Do you use a Hawaiian sling? Or- <laughs> Very experienced. Don't mate. answer him. We, we tried to pull this on the last podcast and it's just <laughs> he's uh, all over the place. But um, it's interesting because I, I refer to it as the aquatic hunting yeah. and uh, that's how I started and came over to hunting for the same sort of reasons. It's a bit of a common theme that the crappy weather, the cold, the uh, lack of visibility, all these different things that can impact your time in the water. And you don't have it as bad on land. And I think it adds to the challenge. Plus, I think the fitness point of view, I, I don't find, you know, it's a different type of fitness, but I always find trekking up mountains is quite a lot more difficult than swimming around with some gigantic flippers on too. Yeah, definitely. There's um, there are different levels of fitness for sure. Um, you know, like now I don't dive as much these days. And the last time I went for a dive, I was pretty buggered. But when I was diving a lot and diving every single week, you know, I was relatively dive fit for for the amount I was diving. Um, and it's it's funny, you know, you get really fit guys who just start diving and they come out with you, and after a couple of hours, they're buggered. You know, and it's no different to if you go hunting and you take someone for a walk up a mountain that is you know go to the gym seven days a week but walking up that mountain absolutely smashes it and you're feeling great so it's a good ego booster um but yeah just different levels of of fitness really is that why you took me spearfishing once it was good for your ego mate I, I i'll be honest the reason i took you was i thought if a white's going to hit us i'll hit the guy that looks more like a seal <laughs> And <laughs> and you had a black wetsuit on <laughs> and I i'll take dodge i'll be all right What's the longest you can hold your breath for? Because that's a key element to spearfishing. Well, funny enough, though, I've got to say is um, holding your breath out of water and holding your breath in water are two very different things as well. I've never been a deep diver or a long diver, but the, the longest I've held my breath was six minutes and five seconds out of water. Which is pretty impressive. That's a long time. What did that translate to, though? Yeah, so that's the thing. Realistically, though, there's not much. I, it's, it's hard to say because – it. When you're diving, it's very mental. You know, it's you can hold your breath out of water, but once you're down 15, 18, 8 metres below, uh, it really changes. You've got pressure on your lungs. You've got pressure on your body. You've got the whole mental game of I'm 20 metres down. I've got 20 metres to get back up. Um, and you notice that a lot when you're, when you're diving and you may be on the bottom in 15 metres, let's say, and suddenly you think, oh, I've got to go out for a breath, but then you see a fish and suddenly you've got another 45 seconds in you. But for me to answer the question, really, uh, what did that translate to? Look, my my long, a long, long dive for me was like a minute 40, okay? Um, in, you know, that was, you know, clear water, nice and comfortable, which, you know, a minute 40 is a, a good time to be underwater. And, and, you know, you can, especially in Australia and in most places around the world, you can shoot any fish you want pretty much, mostly. Uh, but most fish that you want to shoot, 
in well under that time. It does definitely help when you can do a two and a half to three minute dive like some guys can do and do very well and consistently, but you know, it's not necessary either. I think it makes it really impressive when you see the guys that are just free divers, and I'm not talking about spearfishing, but just going down and seeing how far they can go and how much they can hold their breath and, and getting, you know, above 10 minute mark, I think they are currently. And then if they're oxygen assisted, they're pushing the 20 minute mark. It's just in absolutely insane when you think about being underwater for that amount of time. And, you know, I know there's quite a few deaths every year from doing that sort of deep free diving, mm. but it's just insane. But has that helped you, I guess, in, you know, because it is, a, as you touched on the mental game, has that translated into your hunting? Um, I don't really know if I can say it has or hasn't. Maybe something that maybe has, but I haven't noticed. But I think, like, one of the things that I've always been, or I've, I've, I have repeat, I have said a few times in regards to sort of whether it's hunting or spearfishing or whatever it may be, or to me in life in general, is just being comfortable with being uncomfortable. And as soon as you can sort of be comfortable or, you know, accept that being uncomfortable is just normal and just find comfort in it, I think that's a big thing for mental game, no matter what, um, whether it's spearfishing or whether it's, you know, when you're climbing up a mountain and you're buggered or you're soaking wet, hunting and you're uncomfortable, you can either sit there and cry about it, about being uncomfortable, or you can just try to find comfort in it. And that's to me in, in life in general, you know, so maybe it did that because spearfishing is a lot more uncomfortable in my opinion than hunting. You've got a lot of elements, like you said before. One thing like I've found the different big thing with, spearfishing and hunting is on a bad hunt well what's the worst thing you sit around and you sit around camp and have a few beers and have a fire and listen to music that is what it is whereas spearfishing if you're out and it's a two meter swell and you know 20 knots southerly and the viz is two meters and the water is 12 degrees yeah it's, it's not fun in my opinion it's not, not at all no, it sucks we'll get on to some being uncomfortable in some hunting scenarios i've got one other spearing fishing sort of question have you ever been out somewhere i'm not a boatie either but gone out on a boat or something and then you've been a fair way offshore and anything something's happened whether you know your boat's broken down or your gears failed on you i've been on a boat that sunk uh <laughs> it was a lot of fun i was with a uh, a mate of ours simon ladder is his name lived up near southwest rocks and it was actually really funny um my brother Michael and I were up at Southwest Rocks. We didn't have a boat up there, and Simon lived uh, just south of there. And he said, "Well, why don't you come for a dive? Come meet at my place." So we went and met at his place, and we we're just going to sort of beach launch his little boat. Bit of a bit of a mess of a boat, but anyway, it was a boat. And Simon is, uh, you know, uh, I don't see him diving as much these days. He probably does, just doesn't post on social media. But if somebody knew how to kill a mulloway on the east coast, it was Simon. You know, that guy would quite easily shoot 100, mullet, 100 Jewfish mulloway a year. Like he could find fish and he was a good diver all around. And anyways, we <laughs> the day started interesting. We, we were towing his boat with his Hyundai XL and we couldn't get it out of the driveway because it just wasn't getting any traction. And at this point, my brother Michael and I sort of went, uh, I might leave my phone and wallet in the car. And I'd never do that. I always take my phone and my wallet because you know, you're on a boat. It's usually okay to take a phone and wallet. I've got my fishing license all that sort of stuff. And we decided to leave it in the car, so in my car. So anyways, we launched the boat, went for a dive, checked all these headlands, just mainly looking for mulloway, jewfish, pretty 
pretty hard diving. It's not fun diving at all. It's, you know, really washy, almost zero vis. You're diving with your gun under your chin, just waiting to see a diamond of a jewfish and shooting it from, you know, sometimes a foot away, um, getting washed up on the rocks. And, yeah, it's not fun diving, but anyways, that's how you find good fish. And we went and we dove and there was this cave that we swam into and we came back out and we'd look and the nose of the boat is just out of the water. And so I think uh, we had a wave hit the hit the cliff and then come back and go in his boat and it sunk his boat. So we had to climb a cliff face and try and get to the lifeguards to get a get a boat around to get all our gear and get us out of there. So that was pretty. That was a pretty interesting one. I had a uh, a story come in from some secret friends of yours. They've reached out. They'd like me to ask you reminisce on a story. Here we go. You don't know this is coming. So story from Ben Lake and Dan Galea. They once went on a spearfishing trip to Southwest Rocks with Huffy. On approach to the bar, the motor of Huffy's pride and joy boat exploded. <laughs> ben and Dan had to slip their fins on and tow the boat back to shore. <laughs> How did that one? Mate. You didn't bring that one up in your stories. Oh, well, uh, that wasn't as fun, I reckon. Was- we do our research on our guests. <laughs> it was more fun. <laughs> I thought the story where the boat actually sunk was more fun. But, um, mate, that was that was actually good. We used to do we used to do a, a spearfishing trip uh, every November. I think I actually started that tradition. It still lives on now, which is awesome, uh, up to Southwest Rocks. So I took the 565 up. And, yeah, we're, we're actually really lucky. As unlucky it is to for for that to happen, we're also lucky because if we were another 100 metres further out to sea, we would have been right in the mouth of the bar and we would have just been bailing on the boat and hoping that it stayed afloat. Um, so, yeah, as... We're driving out. I just hear what sounded like the piston just knocking all over the place. And I had enough momentum just as soon as I heard that, I just knew something was up. So I quickly turned the boat to face back uh, towards the boat ramp. And anyone who knows Southwest Rocks uh, Bar understands what I'll be talking about. If not, Google it. And so as I spun the boat around, lucky the current was just moving out. Uh, I had enough momentum to actually spin the boat. And I just quickly said, boys, jump in. You need to swim this boat back to the bar or at least away from the mouth of the river. So they did. And, uh, yeah, didn't lose a boat. Just just an outboard. <laughs> and no lives. And good strategy. I guess you were on the boat steering? Yes, I was. Yes. Well played. <laughs> yes, I was steering. I, I let, uh, not that it needed to be steered because I was swimming it, but you don't need three swimmers in the water. Two's enough. <laughs> <laughs> they might have been the strongest swimmers. Yeah. We're going to uh, jump back onto the, the hunting side of it. You've uh, done your fair share of international stuff. You, you know, played around over New Zealand. You've done a little bit of Europe. Where have you been over in that side? Yes, uh, yeah, d- have done New Zealand a few times. I've done uh, a hunt in the Czech Republic, which was awesome. I was uh, over in Europe for a month holiday, and figured, well, while you're there, you may as well go for a hunt before you come home. So, sent my wife home, and I stayed. And, um, yeah, hunting the Czech Republic. I was in Prague at the time, so it worked out well. And it was awesome. So much fun. I actually um, shot three roebuck and a mouflon. Um, yeah, amazing hunting. The the mouflon were – I was actually quite lucky. I shot my mouflon on the first day. And I thought – and not from a tree stand or anything because I sort of said, look, I'd rather not hunt in a tree stand. I'd rather try and spot and stalk. And they sort of said, well, look, they are pretty skittish. and I said, well, I've got five days. Let's just try it out. 
I ended up shooting my Mifflon on the first day, as I said, and after that we kept chasing Mifflon because he's, you know, it's it's. A, I was happy with him, but he goes, we could maybe try find bigger, and I said, well, we may as well look. And I couldn't believe how skittish they were. They really, I found them really unpredictable the way they move. You know, like you'd be sitting off Mifflon, and where you normally see a deer, for example, making their way up and sidling up a hill. You can normally predict where they're going, where like the mufflon would just zigzag everywhere. Then I'd run up and run down and go left and then go right. And they was sort of all over the place. Um, and it was quite thick where we were hunting as well. So, yeah, hunted a uh, shot. I was lucky to shoot that because we didn't really get a good opportunity after that. And then I also shot three roebuck, two on one day and one on another. Um, the guide was nice enough. I was only meant to shoot two, but I guess we got on pretty well. And he, we saw another one and he's like, ah, oh, just shoot it. Don't worry. So I shot it. Um, he didn't have to ask me twice, but no, it was it was an amazing experience hunting over there. It was really really fun. Was that something you organised prior to going over, or you just booked it while you're over there? No, I actually I organised it prior. I actually I organised it through a company here. I can't recall the name. Maybe like it's an Australian, maybe Australian hunting consultants or something like that. Um, so yeah, I organised it with them. Um, and they were, yeah, they were really they were really helpful. They got me in contact with them and with the outfitter over there the guide and yeah they picked me up from prague and drove me to where we were hunting which is right on the border of poland which is pretty cool because actually where we were hunting on the top of this ridge there were these like um i don't know like concrete bollards type of thing and they had like they were red and white and i said what's that he goes well you step over that and you're in poland you step over this side and you're in the czech so that was pretty cool you know something that us aussies don't get to experience stepping on the other side of a country while still stepping on stepping in your own country but yeah, the, the, so it all got organised here, and yeah, I, I, yeah, it was all looked after from there on. And what did you do with them? I mean, we can see what you did with them because behind Jason's shoulder is two roebuck and a mouflon mounted on the wall. Yes. How did that go about coming them back in the country? Yeah, I, they look good too. Yeah, no, really happy with them. Um, they, I, I didn't get them taxidermied over there. I got them taxidermied over here. Um, Gavin Council did them for me. So I just got them tanned and everything, and they just put them all in one box. And you know, especially with the roebuck, they're so small. I've got one as a euro, which I've got the cape still there, so I could also and always um, do that one as well. But I think I might just leave it as a euro. So um, yeah, and they just got shipped over here without an issue. You know, they're not sighties listed or anything like that, so it's a lot easier. Thank God I've done one sighties animal, which is an our dad, which is somewhere around here. and that was a bit of a pain. And now I've got another one coming in soon as well. So it's just, uh, it's a lot easier when they're not. So for a novice like me, Jason, sighties means what? I'm zero knowledge on international hunting. So I, I'm guessing that it's some uh, endangered species sort of list that you can't bring back in. But yeah, for me and, and listeners who might not know, what are, what's that mean? So aside is the long, the, the long and short of it pretty much is they are endangered in a certain part of the world. Um, so say, for example, my Aldad or a Barbary sheep on the Barbary coast where they're originally from, they're protected. You can't kill them there, I believe. I, I saw something the other day actually where so, uh, I thought I saw an advertisement where they were selling a hunt where you could hunt them there. I could be wrong. So I don't want to, you know, don't quote me on that. You can't hunt them there. Um, but I'm pretty sure I saw something which was interesting that you could actually hunt them there. But Dodge, do you know? Def- yeah, they, you can. Again, there's 
areas where you can't because their site is listed in those areas, mm. but there's areas where they're abundant and you can hunt them now. Yep. Dodgy, dodgy facts. <laughs> Say that with a grain of salt, uh, listeners. That's hilarious. Well, here's another dodgy's dodgy's fact. Do either of you know what CITES means? What's the acronym? I've got nothing. Uh, I've checked it a long time ago, mate, but I don't retain that type of useless information. Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. Amazing. CITES. It's not an acronym, but that's what it is. I was about to say, that's a strange acronym. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so but I, I've got mine in Texas where they're an introduced species, so you still need to go through all the hurdles, obviously, to make sure that it's all – it hasn't been shot where they're not meant to be shot. On Texas, that is probably the big dream of mine is to get over to Texas. A, I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan and it's NFL season at the moment, so I'm absorbed in that. It's probably my – it's probably my even with hunting and NFL, my wife uh, hates both of them. But um, <laughs> Texas is one of my dreams because there's just so much there. Have you, you know, was there any other trips there? Did you take any other animals while you were in Texas? I didn't, mate. I was on my honeymoon, so I wasn't going to push it too much. So Hunting was- moon. <laughs> mate, you know, like while you're there, a big, a big thing on, uh, you know, a big expense <laughs> When it comes to to hunts in the flights, you know, so while you're there, why not? And I organised um, while in Texas uh, to go on a yeah on a. I was sort of thinking, what should I do? What should I shoot? And I saw these uh, our dad, and I've always liked him. And I thought, well, why not? So yeah, I just organised it because we drove through the whole South from Vegas all the way down through Texas, and then. Um, I've got cousins Arizona, so Arizona first, then through Texas, and then down to New Orleans and up through to Nashville, Memphis, Tennessee. So we did the whole driving on the south. It was awesome, but yeah, why not stop in? And it was a scheduled, I think, four or five day hunt. Uh, but like I said to the the guide, I said, "Look, mate, I'm here on my honeymoon. Uh, you don't need to try and you know prolong this hunt to make it look like something it's not. If we find a good animal on the first day, I'll take it and get back to my honeymoon." But um, I shot it on the second day, not the first, uh, so it worked out well. And yeah, amazing hunt, lots of fun. What was your first international hunt? Probably that. Probably the our dad would have been my first one. Oh no, New Zealand. Sorry, New Zealand would have been my first experience of hunting overseas. And how how do Australians go about hunting in New Zealand? Were you doing state? Well, I'm going to say state forest. That's the wrong word, but public land. Yes. Or was it a guided New Zealand trip? No, I've never done guide in New Zealand, always public land. I was fortunate to have um, a, mate of, a mate take me over for the first time and a few other friends, Harves, Andrew Harvey. He, um, he's been there a few times and he went uh, with a, he went guided, I think, one or two times first and then we thought, well, why don't we do it ourselves? And we organised a few of us to go and I think it was uh, five of us. Awesome trip, great to do with friends. Really not hard to organize um and especially these days with the likes of you know facebook let's jump on one of those pages and just ask the question and you'll find out really quick on what you need to do um i guess what areas to hunt well i mean that's up to you to do some research or try and and ask um ask people but i have found you know, I'm, I'm on a few of those chamois and tar hunting pages that a lot of the Kiwis are on and you get a lot of people jumping on there and asking, you know, I want to go there for the first time. Can anyone help? And there's always a lot of people willing to help. And you see a lot of these people a month later put up a photo of a 12-inch bull tar they shot. So 
you know, it seems like the, the Kiwis are more than happy to, to help as well, and Aussies as well, obviously, um, on spots. But it's it's not a hard hunt to organise, and it's actually probably for Aussies the cheapest international hunting you ever do. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna touch on that. It's definitely one of the first. It's this first step in the water, to, dipping your toes in the water for most Australians when it comes to international hunting. Yeah, and that's got its pros and cons. It's definitely not an easy hunt physically like if you're pushing up in those mountains the weather and things can change you need some pretty technical gear do you have any initial advice if someone was you know doing what you're just saying organizing a first trip over some things that are not worth taking not worth taking uh hard to say uh, we we cram a lot of beer in those choppers so we take everything a terrible tent <laughs> yeah not worth taking is crap gear and not worth and don't expect great weather I would probably be easier to maybe some of the things very worth taking and doing is when you get over there, you can hire a mountain radio from Hunt and Fish and all these sort of places. Definitely get that. You can get your weather up, weather updates every day. Where I would start would be obviously asking as many questions as you can on to as many people on social media platforms, but then getting in contact with a chopper pilot over there, which, you know, you can, they're all over the place. Just Google uh, helicopters hunting South Island and you'll have your pick and just talking to them that you find that they're pretty pretty easy going and happy to share information in regards to where to go and also the weather coming up and if you tell them look it's the first time I'm going to New Zealand can you help me out you know on where to go and what to do you find most of the chopper pilots over there and the companies over there are really good with those type of things if they see bad weather coming up they won't put you to camp at 2,000 metres on the top of a ridge, they'd say, look, the weather's coming in, boys. I don't suggest that. I'm going to put you down on this hut. You should climb up these hills or these mountains and you should find some tar. So they're pretty good like that. Look, just probably jumping over to one thing I've always sort of looked at is training, like from a physical standpoint. So do you do any sort of fitness training to prepare yourself for a hunt? So I know you've recently come back from one and did – you know, in the lead up to that, was there a fitness regime to get ready? Yeah, well, I used to, um, when I had the time and I could, I used to I used to train three to five days a week and training, I used to do CrossFit in the mornings and then I'd, get, I'd change that to sort of suit my hunt coming up. And, you know, if I had a hunt coming up, I'd do things like, you know, more lunges maybe or back squats and things that were really leg intensive. Unfortunately, now, just looking after my little four-year-old girl on my own, I can't really do that anymore and, and you know, go to places like that. So I spent the money and bought myself a, one of those Stairmaster, the actual stair climbing machines, which aren't cheap, but I can do it from home. I can put a backpack on. I do it with my boots on. And the reason I do it with my boots on is not so much to wear in my boots, but it makes you walk on your toes, which actually... Because I've got a size 13, well, my, my new boots are size 14. So with your boots on, my feet don't fit on the whole step. So it makes me walk on my toes, which actually is how you walk up a, up a mountain. And I just do that. I just do 45 minutes to an hour just walking up nonstop. And I find that definitely helps. That'd be similar to you, Dodge, with your training, mate? Yeah, very similar approach. Um, yes, lots of stairs, a couple of stairs up to the takeaway shop each day. <laughs> Oh, look, internet issues. Isn't that convenient? Yeah, how convenient. How convenient. I uh, question, what boots were you breaking in or what are these new boots you're wearing? I actually ended up getting the Lathrop & Sons. They're semi-custom boots. I've 
my brother and I are fortunate enough to have my dad's feet, which is very unfortunate. And it was quite interesting. I, you know, we did a bit of research. I got a mate, a halves has got Lathrop and Sons. He didn't get the customs, but he, um, he's got them and he raved on about them and did a bit of research. And we thought, well, let's maybe try these out. So it's not cheap if you do what the semi custom thing, because they send you out like a footprint thing that you, you've got to do on your foot and then you send it back to them. And it's like, you know, you're speaking to a doctor, they call you up and they do a consultation. I think they're over in, I forgot where they were in the States, maybe Utah or something. And they go through it all and they, as I said, it's semi-custom. It's not a full custom boot, but when he spoke to my brother and I about our feet, he was, uh, <laughs> he pretty much said, I've never seen feet like this before. Uh, there's a bit of work to do for you guys to, <laughs> to actually have comfortable boots. And yeah, it was money well spent. They, I didn't have to break them in, but they, they're probably the most comfortable boot I've ever worn. And it was quite interesting. I've always bought myself 12 and a half to maybe 13 size boots. And he said, mate, you're a size 14 and you're going to, I'm going to send you a size 14, which is interesting. Um, some people, I guess, don't need that sort of stuff. They're lucky enough to just put on a pair of boots and feel great. But for us, we, we always had uncomfortable feet no matter what boots we put on. So I, yeah. In my last hunt that I did, which I'm sure we'll touch on soon enough, um, my feet felt fantastic the whole time. And I got the insulated boots as well, expecting for it to be a lot colder than what it was, and they are super warm. So before we jump into the latest hunt, have you done much in Australia? Like I know you've done a lot internationally, but did it start in Australia? How did you get into that international scene? Um, Yeah, I mean, mainly hunted in, in Australia. I still do. Not as much as I would like, but um, yeah, definitely still hunting in Australia. I, you know, spend a little bit of time down in Victoria chasing samba, um, shot chittles, shot fallow, shot a few fallow. So, well, how did I start in hunting? It was pretty much from my my dad. We always used to go once a year out west, go out Ningen, Her, you know, Hermitdale, Cobar, those sort of places once a year for seven, eight days with my uncles and my cousins and go hunting. And then at the age of around... 20, 21, 22, me and a mate, Dutchy, we thought we really want to get more into hunting. We want to do it more than just once a year. So we started just looking for properties and then found some properties and then we saw deer and started getting into deer hunting. And then, yeah, it sort of, you know, got the bug, as you say, and, and never looked back. How did it come into international hunting? Well, pretty much just from traveling. I've always loved traveling. I love going overseas. I'm always booking an overseas trip whenever I get back from one. Um, so, and then naturally, like I said, you're already over somewhere. Why not do a hunt while you're there? So that's pretty much how the overseas hunting has begun for me. Yeah, nice. So let's get into it because I'm absolutely dying to hear about this latest hunt. Do you want to tell our listeners where you went and what you were chasing? Sure. And then let us know if you were successful. Okay. Um, so this started probably earlier on this year. I was looking at, I didn't have a hunt booked in, so I was getting a little bit itchy. And uh, I saw the option and the opportunity to go to Kyrgyzstan, should Ibex. I've got a few mates who have done it. And I thought, well, this is one that I've got to do. I've got to book in. And in comparison, price-wise to other international hunts, it's actually not too bad of a price, uh, especially when you start talking about you know, North American type of animals, um, if you want to compare them to that. So I booked in... To, I made contact with uh, with an outfitter in Kyrgyzstan to to hunt ibex, and naturally, 
you know, loving to hunt with my two brothers who are into it as well. I asked them both, hey, you know, do you guys want to come? I'd love for you to come. My brother Daniel was pretty much on board straight away. My brother Michael was 50-50, but then after not too much convincing, he was in. So the three of us were booked in and set to go to Kyrgyzstan and fly from Sydney, Dubai, Dubai, Bishkek, and do an Ibex hunt. Yeah, without trying to skip the whole story, mate, it was awesome. It was so much fun. You know, always a little bit nerve-wracking, I guess, when you go to a, a place like that, not sure what to expect. Um, but like I've been telling everyone that I, since I've come back, it's one of the safest countries I've been to in the way I felt in that country. I have definitely felt more uneasy in America, South America, Thailand, Vietnam, Paris. I have felt more uneasy than what I felt in Kyrgyzstan. It felt, yeah, it just the people were amazing. The whole the whole experience is really really good. We yeah we flew out of here three odd weeks ago. It was a twelve day twelve days over there. As I said Sydney Dubai Dubai Bishkek with an eight hour lay layover in in Dubai. So you do get there pretty buggered, but um, once you land also in Bishkek, you've got a ten hour drive to where you're actually going to hunt or to base camp. So it's a bit of a bit of a travel there, but. You know, your eyes are wide open once you get there because it's amazing countryside, you know. It's it's a it's a really cool place. Yeah, so then obviously we arrived in Bishkek. We had a 10-hour drive. We, we got we, we actually got um, there's a, a lady there who's part of her business who meets you at the airport. So it's really nice and, and easy. Like, I guess maybe I should go back a couple of steps. We did take our own rifles. So we did have to do paperwork to export our rifles. For anyone who has done this before or are doing it now, it's a little bit easier now. You used to have to do paperwork to then re-import your rifle, which is is that nerve-wracking. I was just thinking. You, you mentioned you stopped in Dubai, obviously change of flights and things like that. Is it nerve-wracking? Because I've travelled a couple of times, and you know, there's been some times where the luggage has gone a, a bit array, and you know, we've had to sort of sit there and go, "I've got everything's gone." I could see that ruining a hunt getting over there and going, hey, the rifle's not here. Uh, you know, it's not like carry-on luggage. Is that something that's nerve-wracking for yourself? 100%. Always nerve-wracking, especially when doing a hunt like this because it may be 12 days there but it's five days hunt and that's the only five days you've got allocated. It's one tip that I'll give to everyone and we only learnt this because we were meant to be at camp with another guy from the States um, and he spent two days in Bishkek waiting for his rifle to turn up. And it was actually quite interesting because he was saying to us, he put, you know, those little Apple tags, Apple button things. They're like a tracking thing you can put in your keys or in your wallet. Yep. He's got one of them in his gun case. And he could see that his gun was in New York. So he was speaking to them saying, I can see where my gun is because every time they open up the case to check what's going on, it's going off on them. So that was actually something that, I and myself and my brother said from now on we'll get one of those little Apple tracking things and put it in our gun case just in case. But yeah, it is nerve-wracking. You know, the good thing is I guess if you go with two other people with two other rifles, you'd hope that if one gets lost, well, I guess you've got backup. That's a good thing with New Zealand as well. You can usually hunt as a, a, a with a couple of you anyway. What sort of rifle setup are you using on that style of hunt? Um, for this for this hunt, I took my I've got a fierce in three hundred rum with a night force on it. Um, so it's actually I love this rifle. It's super light, very accurate. 
great for long distance, but with the scope that I've got, the NX8, it's, um, you know, I can drop the power right down, the, the magnification down to two and a half. So it's a gun that I can use to shoot animals out 600 meters if I want, but I, I'm more than confident to be able to use it while stalking Samba as well. Um, so yeah, that's what I took. My brothers both took their 300 WSMs that they've got in ticker P3 lights, which around six of us, when I say six of us mates and my brothers have all got, we've just found they've always shot amazing for an off the shelf rifle. And, you know, my one has done a lot of overseas trips as well, uh, mainly to New Zealand. But no, I bought this rifle last year and my, my aim was always to take it. And yeah, I took the 300 rum. And then once you got there, you obviously made your way to camp. How, how did the hunt play out? Yeah, so I guess the the first leg of the trip is the 10 hours of getting there, which, you know, as I said, it goes pretty quick because you're enjoying, enjoying looking around. And also, to be honest, we're in a really comfortable, massive van, so we also enjoyed catching up on a bit of sleep as well when the view got a little bit repetitive. And then we got to the main base camp. Now, with this outfitter, the, the base camp is really comfortable. It's pretty much two shipping containers with uh, – you know, a, 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 with a building in between. Um, you've got your own or shared bedroom with one other person. There's a kitchen, there's a camp cook. It's really warm, super comfortable, amazing view. And you've also got a sauna outside, which is really cool. Um, the sauna is pretty much what they use as a showering area as well. So you jump in the sauna. They've got cold and hot water in there and soap so you can scrub yourself down, which is nice to be able to have a bit of a bit of a wash. It was actually quite funny. We weren't sure of the etiquette when it came to the sauna. So they said to us, go have a sauna. So me and my two brothers went in there and we weren't sure, do we get changed in, like once we get out of the sauna in a drying type room, like what you call a wet room, I guess, like when you walk into a house, or do we go back into the to the house? So we thought, oh, well, it's, it was a bit hot, a bit steamy in there. So we didn't really want to get changed in there. So we just put the towels around us and walked into the hut. And as we did, the camp cook lady and the main outfitter owner ran into the bedrooms. So <laughs> we realized that maybe we were meant to get changed. We didn't walk in naked, of course. But anyways, I think for for future future hunters, maybe just get changed in the sauna because that's what we did after. I think they found it a little bit awkward. But then after a sort of a day, we got there. We spent the night there. Amazing food, amazing dinner, a couple of beers. We then woke up the next morning and our, our guides turned up at the at the um, at the main camp the guides want you to sight your rifles in there and check your zero not sight them i should say but check your zero which all of ours were fine there was no change um at 200 meters so and they like to do it while you're there what while they're there i should say um because they want to obviously see how you shoot to be able to then judge how you shoot out when you've got an ibex in front of you um, pretty much then they go through all your gear, they put them in, you know, these packs for the horses, um, and off you go. Not on the horses yet, though. Uh, we got driven, uh, I don't know, maybe 20 Ks or so. Me and my guide and um, another guide jumped out there, and my brother Michael and my brother Daniel went to where they were going to go. So they were further away. They had another sort of 40-minute drive or something like that away. Uh, they were going to be sharing the camp and riding together where I was off to go on my own with these guys. It seems like the guides themselves know the valleys that they're going into. Um, so it seemed like my guide wouldn't necessarily know the valley where 
Michael and Daniel went into. So it just ha- so happened that that's how it worked out. So who shot first? If you split up from your brothers and they were out the other way, did uh, anyone come back to camp after a good day, or was it? Did you have to earn it all five days? Um, well, let's before I tell you that. Let's go back a step because I shot mine in the first afternoon and it's going to sound like too quick of a hunt. <laughs> let's let's talk about the, the horse riding first for someone who's not used to riding horses and how my knees and my, my butt felt. Yeah, go on. Talk about that. I don't muck around, mate. If I see I, – I, I'm, I'm a big believer of don't pass up on the first day what you'd shoot on the last, you know. So, I'm – Look, personally, I've, I've never scored any of my heads that I've shot. I've never done anything like that. For me, it's not that I'm against scoring or anything like that. I just, it doesn't bother me. I've always weighed my fish, but funny enough with my deer and stuff, I'm just, yeah, for me, it's always the experience. So I've never been too fussed about that. So, you know, a couple of inches here or there, I'll let you take that wherever you want, Dodge. No way. <laughs> so the horse, so once we got, once, once we got to where the cars dropped us off, we loaded up the horses, had a bottle of vodka with the guides, which was interesting. You know, they, we all had a massive swigs of vodka and finished off a whole bottle and off we went on a horse. It was, it was amazing. The sea, the scenery of riding those horses in was phenomenal. Going through, right, you know, riding through rivers and stuff like that. You know, you, people would do that trip just for the horse riding if you're into that sort of thing. Got to our base camp, had a lunch. Uh, lunch is interesting. I didn't mind it. You know, it's pretty much salami, bread, cheese, two-minute noodles with some, like, canned beef thrown in there. Oh, that's Dodge's staples. <laughs> he does it here when he's going for a 10-minute hunt down the road. There you go. What, what more do you want, you know? Was- Can of V. That's all I could ask. Oh, uh, yeah. And make sure it's blue. Are you only drinks blue? No, mate, not my thing. I'll have coffee and vodka before a V. So, Jace, you're a pretty tall dude with a size 14 feet. Those horses over there aren't particularly tall. Did you have to drag your toes and help them up the hills or were they tall enough to carry you? Those horses are not tall, but I tell you what, they can, uh, they've definitely got some go. They're very used to it. I think they, uh, they might, they, they might have experienced a few overweight Americans in the past, mate. So, uh, I think they're not too bad with me. Uh, if any, if anything, I could have actually lowered the stirrups a bit because I think that's why I was actually getting sore knees. But it's amazing what these horses climb up, you know, and for someone like me who's not used to riding horses and as sore as I was in, at some at some point of that, you know, horse riding expedition, I uh, I sort of wanted the horses to stop and for me to have a walk until I had a walk and I realised how thin the air is at 3,800 metres and then I just wanted to get back on the horse. Dodge, what's that in feet, mate? Uh, it's about that, 9,000. I think it's over ten. How tall do you think Jason is, Matt? Oh, mate, if you're – I haven't obviously met him and you're saying he's a tall bloke, so I'd probably say about 1.9 metres. <laughs> uh, what's that in feet and inches? We have a little thing going. Jason, just to fill you in, we had, <laughs> we had one of his reminiscing stories about when he was in BC guiding on a moose and uh, just the uh, feet and inches and then he went to kilometres and it's just all over the place. So um, I, I noticed before that he was saying kilograms, I was waiting for the pounds to be honest, but uh, yeah, sorry, sorry, mate, continue don't, with your story. Don't start, mate, metric system over here, right? There's a reason why it's the best bloody system that we've got. <laughs> but when you're over there, all your stories and things are in feet and inches. Just what happens in my brain? <laughs> mate, the, um, yeah, so base camp, where was I? Base camp. Food, lunch, and they said, "Well, let's go for a, let's go for a ride and let's go have a look for an ibex." You know, no point in wasting time. So 
I was down for that. Quickly changed some of my gear around and got the backpack on and, and off we went. Um, started riding up this up through this valley, which is yeah, really pretty. Actually did some really interesting climbing on these horses that, you know, I was holding on to the front of that saddle pretty hard because I felt like I was just gonna roll back off this horse. And it was really cool. I actually saw a yak up there and I got some cool photos of the yak that was just standing there watching us ride past and then we saw some ibex. And they were mainly all, all nannies, a couple of young billies there, but mainly all nannies and kids. Uh, so we sort of ignored them. We kept riding around and, yeah, rode through some pretty, well, down some steep stuff and back up some steep stuff. And we had some more ibex not far from us. They sort of just were sitting around 180 metres from us and they weren't very skittish. And it was interesting because, you know, you hear different things. I guess maybe like my mouflon experience, some people have experienced them and found that they weren't skittish at all where you know i've heard ibex are super on the ball amazing eyesight super skittish and the guides the way they do everything it seems like they definitely are but i don't know if it was just because these ibex were mainly nannies and 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 kids that they weren't very skittish but we rode pretty much straight past them and they just watched us the whole time we got off the horses and sat there and glassed them and they just looked at us the whole time and the reason we got off the horses was because we saw the the mob of ibex of which i shot mine out of which were still a long way away so then a bit of a plan was made up and the guide was actually asking me you know because they don't speak a lot of english and the guide was um was asking me you know jason you'll say jason 200 shoot and i said yes he said jason 300 shoot and i said yes he said 400 shoot i said yes 500 i said yeah maybe 600 i said i can but, you know, depending. And he said, okay. And then he worked back from that. He said, 200, running, shoot. <laughs> and, and I went, look, 200 if running, yeah, maybe. And then we ended up establishing that at 400 metres, if it's walking, I'll shoot it, okay, if I've got a good rest. And we, Which is good because they wanted to know what you're capable or what you're confident in doing. And I think if you do these type of hunts, don't also be one of those people that, says that you're willing to shoot out at 600, but you've never really done it because they will make you shoot at 600 if you say you're confident. So don't lie, be really honest with them. But also, can I just say, if you're thinking about doing a hunt like this where English is limited, go through this with them as well if they don't with you. You know, I would really recommend to even take a piece of paper. If I was to do this hunt again, I would take a piece of paper with 200, 250, 300, 350 out to what I'm comfortable at and when you see animals, point at that and get them to point at it. Because one of the first things they do when they see animals, they take your binos off you, especially if they're good binos. And I've got likers with rangefinders and they just poof, take it off you straight away. So you're left with no binos. They've got binos, but they're not great. And they will start using your binos. So then when you're trying to say, like what happened, how far, and they're talking to you and in either no or very broken English, it can be pretty frantic. So yeah, just be prepared with that. But as I was saying, we saw these ibex and we we're riding along and we rode up to, I think I was around, we we're around 300, 3,400 meters. So whatever that is in feet for you, Dodge. And <laughs> we, uh, it started snowing on us and we just sat off these animals just waiting and they expected them to come down and feed down towards us, but they ended up sort of moving away from us, but down. So we quickly got on the horses, rode a bit and then started sidling very fast on foot along this mountain. And that's when I realized how bad it feels to try and 
do things fast at 3,800 meters because I was huffing and puffing like I have never hunted before. <laughs> maybe that's where you got the name Huffy from. Living up to the nickname. <laughs> Very good. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. So then after that, so then, yeah, huffing and puffing. So maybe that is where I got the name Huffy from. I We finally got close to these animals. And as I said, mate, I, uh, I you know, I've hunted New Zealand numerous times and physically climbing New Zealand is harder. But just the, you know, the elevation of this is what does it for you. Um, it really, you really notice how, how thin the air is up there. We, um, got into within 168 meters of this ibex, these ibex, this mob of all billies. And at that distance, um, we tried, we're on just, we're higher, we're in this valley where there's pretty much no grass, it's just rocks and snow. And, um, at the end of this valley, we're pretty much right at the end of the valley. And we saw, as I said, we saw the ibex and they started running. So the guides sort of shouted at me, quick, 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 run, 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 run. So we ran across, got on this other side of this little ridge and they were climbing steep uphill away from us. I asked for a, a range and the, um, the guide said 300, 333. And I said, okay. And then I said, which one? Because I didn't have my binoculars. So I already had my my uh, scope wound down to two and a half power. But, you know, it's a lot easier, two eyes, binoculars, to be able to have a look which one you want to shoot. So I tried to sort of get from them left, right, one, two, three, which one, which one. And I was just getting spoken to in Russian and Kyrgyz. I had no idea what they were saying. They were screaming at me to shoot, shoot, shoot. But they weren't sort of helping me out in regards to which one and the ibex were walking and moving away um and i said how far how far and uh he said he said three and then he said five so i thought okay i think he means 350 i already dialed two moa and i think then it was all pretty rushed but i'm pretty sure i did one more click on that i couldn't go i couldn't understand which ibex they were telling me to look at or at least left or right so i just went bugger this i just had the gun down i just looked at I pretty much just only looked at the left side, the left side of the herd, mob, whatever the rec the correct uh, term is for a group of ibex. And I looked at the left-hand side and I picked the third one from the left, which I noticed he curled nicely back and he sort of, you could really tell he dropped down, uh, which is one of the indications of a good size ibex. They're not sort of up and still staying up. They start to drop back. And I picked him out. He was still walking uphill. And I put it on his shoulder and let him have it. I, I sort of, I went to, I led him a little bit. Not, I didn't, I didn't lead off him, but just led him a little bit. And it seems like maybe I didn't need to do that because I did shoot him a little bit forward. But where the bullet went in, it actually ended up, because he was walking up and away, uh, the bullet ended up entering sort of just in front of his shoulder and sort of getting lodged in his head, behind his head. So it dropped him on the spot. So it was perfect shot in that regard. Maybe not perfect on paper is where you'd shoot him, but it was perfect in that regard. What does that feel like? What? So we'll wrap it into a whole little package and you've just gone overseas. You've got your three brothers. You've been planning it for a year. You've flown in, gone through the luggage part, the bags, the guns, gone through the camp, gone through the food. You've shot what you wanted to shoot in a country where you can't really speak their language. Is everyone kissing and hugging? Or what is that? What's the emotion on that? Oh, mate, it was awesome. I was pumped. I was absolutely 
pumped. I was yahooing. The guides were yahooing. They were saying, good, good shoot, Jason. Good, good shoot, good shoot. They were stoked. There was a couple of high fives around. The guides quickly lit up a cigarette to celebrate straight after <laughs> it was shot, um, which I couldn't think of anything worse when you were huffing and puffing like that than to light up a cigarette, but off they went. Um, mate, the emotions were there. It was it was just a relief, you know, like uh, going into one of these hunts, you've, you've got to understand that you may not shoot anything. You know, it, it's it's part of it. It's hunting. It's it's free range, fair chase hunting, where you may shoot something or you may not, and you've got to you've got to understand that you may be disappointed. So, to shoot something on the first day and to shoot a good animal on the first day was a huge relief. The job was done as such. Yeah, when you look back at it, you'd go, "Well, geez, I would have liked to have spent maybe another three four days in there." But you know, it was. I said, don't don't pass up on the first day what you'd shoot on the last. And, you know, there was no way that you'd pass up that billy on the first, second or last day. Um, so I was stoked, mate. Did you ever find out if that was the one that they were pointing at? No, I didn't. Actually, not long after I shot and it dropped and I sort of sat back and looked at it, I went, oh, maybe I should have looked at the right-hand side of that mob too. But once I actually got up to the animal, I didn't even question anymore because he ended up they they measured him they asked me if I had tape I said no I don't have tape and and I just said good one good one they went oh very good they thought it was around 115 centimeters and I said yep cool whatever that's great um it looked good and I ended up measuring at 125 which is a good animal yeah, big difference yeah yeah definitely big difference so as I said I didn't bring tape I think a lot of hunters bring tape so they expected me to have it to measure it up straight away. But yeah, ended up measuring 125 centimetres. And, you know, as I said, but when I first laid eyes on the animal, I didn't really care. If there was one a little bit bigger, look, if, if it was 10 centimetres smaller, I wouldn't have cared. I was happy to shoot any animal that, to me, when I looked through it in a scope, I was happy with. Then what happens? You've well shot it. You've obviously made your way over to it. What what happens next? Yeah, so well, made my way over to halfway of it because where it was shot was way up on top of this mountain was like a big scree slide. And I said, well, we go, we go up. And the old guide who seemed to be the main guide, he's around 65 years old, he said, no, 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 we wait. He go up. <laughs> so they sent one of the other guys up to grab it and sort of drag it down the hill, which I'll be honest, I was pretty happy about because we had to go halfway up and we were puffing our guts up. And... uh yeah, so they brought it down. We got some photos of it. That's an interesting one. We were sort of running out of light. We had a two-hour horse ride back, which was going to be through the through the night. And I was trying to get photos, and they were trying to get photos, but also hurry up. And I was like, no, I want to try and get good photos. And, you know, there were some really interesting, weird angles that they were taking. And I'm trying to say, no, stand there and take a photo here. And I'm glad I did because I got a couple of good photos, maybe out of 30 taken. But, yeah, and then we just put some jackets over it and rode out of there um, that night. We didn't get back till well after dark. There were some really sketchy bits coming up through the day. So riding out at night, there were parts where we wouldn't, they wouldn't allow me and even one of the other guides would not ride down. We'd have to walk down and guide our horses down because it's just too sketchy and too dangerous to ride down here at night. After a couple of hours and absolutely over it, we got back to camp, had a big feed and, no vodka, unfortunately. Uh, I should have brought some. I'd, another tip for you guys, just throw a bottle of vodka in your pack. 
And yeah, we got back got back to camp and had a had a sleep, and then we woke up in the next morning uh, at around quarter to six, and I was ready to go get the animal and cape it out. And they said, "No, no, no, you wait here." And I said, "No, no, no, I'll come, I'll come." And they're like, "No, it's okay. You stay. You relax. We go quick, quick, quick." So I was a little bit. It was sort of I was a little bit uh, I was a little bit bummed by that in one way. I guess if I really wanted to, I could have gone. But I was also a little bit grateful because I was super sore from that ride, <laughs> and and uh, my my ass was and my 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 knees just as I said just, uh, not used to it just uh, were a bit sore. But I did feel also that if I pushed to go, I think they just really wanted to ride up there quick, get the job done, cape it, get the meat, and get out. And I really didn't want to hold them up on that, so I just thought, oh well, fine. I stayed at camp while they went and got the animal, which yeah, is a little bit. A little bit like a champagne hunt, I get. I guess you shoot the animal and don't even do the hard work. But uh, look, at the end of the day, I was I was happy. Have you ever gone on any hunts where you haven't been successful? Um, not these type of hunts. No, I've been on plenty of hunts where I've gone on my own. Anyone who's chased Samba has been unsuccessful more times than successful, but not uh not paid for hunts. No, I haven't. Yeah, sorry, that's what I meant, like going overseas because I, I can imagine that's a – not only is it a large investment of money, uh, it's a large investment with time going overseas and travelling and especially with a young, you know, a young child yep. and doing all that and not being successful. I could see that, you know, really dampen spirits. It would and but I guess it's one of those things where you just need to be mentally prepared for that. Be mentally prepared for the fact that you may not shoot something. I've got a uh, a mate who just come back from Alaska. I'll let him tell his own story, but unfortunately, he was not successful in his hunt. But you know, he's always he's always uh, you know been like me in that regard, and he's always sort of said it to me. You know, I may not shoot anything. Are you laughing, Dodge? It looks like you're laughing at me. No, I know who that friend is, and I'm so di- I know what that hunt meant to him, and. That's very hard to hear. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we'll let him tell that story because I could probably talk him into yeah. having an asado. You know, but he, you know, he had an amazing experience over there. Yeah. Yeah, he had a, you know, he had an amazing experience over there. He wasn't just there for the hunt. He spent quite a bit of time there helping with other hunters and packing meat and all that sort of stuff. So for him, it was a whole experience, which was great. Yeah, but it, to answer your question, I haven't I haven't had an unsuccessful hunt like that. But I guess you just need to expect it. And if you're not if you're not prepared to uh, to accept the fact that you may not shoot anything, maybe that type of stuff not for you. What would be your most memorable hunt? Like you obviously experienced and you've done a lot of traveling hunting, uh, plus a fair bit here in Australia. What would you classify as one of the top sort of hunts? Whether it be for the experience, the the trophy, the meat. What would you I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but no, no. Look, um, I'd say this would be one of them, not because of the animals, but because it was done with my brothers. You know, like I've one of my one of my best fellow I've shot is one of my least memorable hunts because I was on my own. You know, and it's for me, it's about the experience of being there with people. You know, like I would have been chuffed to have done this hunt and shot that animal, but it's not the same without either good mates or my brothers there. So I'd say probably this hunt would be one of them. Um, a couple of New Zealand ones, you know, where I took my uncle um, for the first time and got him to shoot his first bull tar. And it was me, my two brothers, my uncle and my cousin who were on this hunt. 
you know, it, one of my most memorable hunts in New Zealand, I didn't even take a rifle and I didn't even shoot an animal. I got, I wouldn't say I got because it's not like I did it, but collectively my uncle shot his first tar, my brother shot his first chamois, my other brother shot his first chamois, and my cousin shot his first chamois. So, you know, and that was like the, the game plan. I never went with the intent of even pulling the trigger. Um, and that was one of my most memorable hunts because it was just done with family, people I love, and we all had a great time doing it. Lots of drinks, lots of fun time, lots of banter. You mentioned there about some trophy photos and the difficulties in doing that. Now, I know, and people can probably find these on your socials, there's some trophy videos that you like to take with your brothers, and it usually involves one of you slapping one of the other ones, taking advantage of the fact that one of them's <laughs> sleeping. Is that something that happened on the Kirk hunt? <sighs> It did, mate. It did. How did that start? It, it only happened because, <laughs> you know, I don't know how it, – it would have started maybe just by me one day slapping my brother Daniel while he slept. And Daniel has a tendency of falling asleep in front of us all the time. And he always says, I'll get you back one day. But, mate, it probably came about, I don't know, one day Daniel was asleep and uh, <laughs> and we slapped him and filmed it. We put it on uh, Facebook and everybody loved it and said they wanted more. So, you know, who are we to deny entertainment for all of our all of our followers which is pretty much all our family and friends but yeah and then since then we've just uh really we sort of got off it a little bit but it's more that whenever we go on a trip now we've got all these people asking us where's the slap videos where's the slap videos so daniel has a tendency to fall asleep in front of us all the time he always promises he'll get us back but he never does so we always you know take the opportunity when it's there and if he's asleep we slap him in the face and film it and He's a good sport about it, though. I, I will admit that he doesn't. He doesn't get that angry. Sometimes he does. Daniel has also provided one of the better, uh, one of the best rating videos I've ever put on my socials when I sold him a raptor razor knife, and he <laughs> was gutting a pig up at your family farm, I believe. Yeah, he was. <laughs> and he was. as he was using the knife, the pig pig was hanging up by its back legs in a tree, and he was running the knife down the guts. And the way the knife works. It's got an internal blade for cutting the skin and the gut cavity and then an external blade on the back of it that's used for skinning. But if you use the knife poorly, like Daniel did, he rolled the blade back a bit far and he actually cut the guts at the same time as he passed down. And it, I can, we'll put it up on the socials. I've got it definitely in my backlog of videos. But it just involves Daniel dry heaving and I think he, I don't know if he ended up vomiting, but definitely dry heaving, covered in guts, very funny. Yeah, that video is disgusting. The amount of guts that he got him, he got on himself. I still blame you, mate, for selling him that knife. But um, anyway, I don't, I don't think you've used that knife ever since. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't either. <laughs> that was disgusting. Yeah, da da Daniel is definitely uh, a good source of entertainment. What What happens then? So we're going back to Kirk. So you've you've successfully completed your trip what happened to the boys how did they go give us a short rundown on what they did so i got them on the inreach i sent them a message on the inreach saying uh ibex down and i um obviously then turned it off so next day um i got a message i think we were about to ride out it was around two o'clock in the afternoon ride back to where the, we rode in from originally from where the cars dropped us off and i got a message from michael saying i've shot one Daniel missed one. And so I was very happy about that, but also very sad at the same time for my brother Daniel. But, you know, it was only the second day. Um, so Michael shot his 
and their story pretty much is they hunted together. They went and they climbed up this mountain that Daniel said was a horrible climb. It was thick. It was steep. The air was thin. And they got up to this spot where there were a mob of Ibex and the guides did the, you know, both of you shoot on three, which I'm not a fan of that. I'm pretty sure I said to them as well that if they get you to try to do that, no, you don't, you know, if you're not comfortable, just don't do it. You know, because you've got to remember too, if you wound an animal, if they count it as a hit, you know, what does that mean? Your hunt's over because you've hit an animal because they made you go one, two, three, flinch, and the guy next to you's gun went off point one of a second before yours and made you shoot three inches to the left. Luckily, Daniel, as much as he's getting, he's good at getting slapped, he's not that good at counting because he went to shoot on four for some reason. I don't know what happened. He doesn't know what happened. <laughs> but it went one, two, three, and Michael let one go, and then Daniel sort of waited a second, and I don't know, he let one go and totally missed so Michael got his, uh, very happy about that. Obviously, Daniel was a bit bummed, but Daniel said, look, I had no doubt I'll get mine. They went for, they got back, they had lunch, and then the guides took Daniel on a two-hour horse ride somewhere else, and they went up, which I've looked at in Google Earth because I've got all the points marked from the inReach, and he showed me the base, and they sort of rode up into, and then Daniel got his one that afternoon so first day i got mine second morning michael got his second afternoon day you got his yeah that's pretty epic it is so we have a segment on this one called tech talk and i think it's a really perfect time to talk about that because you just mentioned about the inreach being able to communicate and um for our listeners i don't think if they're not aware the iphone 14 is about to be released and there's a lot of talk about the iPhone or Apple pairing up with Starlink, Elon Musk's Starlink, which is the new satellite system, which basically means your phone will be have full reception at all times. So you won't need things like an inReach. You will be able to have the phone, just your normal iPhone, and be able to communicate and send photos and all those things. Now, for me, I think it takes a little bit of the romance out of being in the wilderness or the bush when you're hunting. A, a hunt like this, do you see pros and cons to uh, you know a, a new tech like that? Number one, if that is the case with iPhone 14, if anybody wants to buy an inReach, feel free to um, hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> You've got one for sale? <laughs> I'm, I'm currently on Starlink now. That's what I run at home. Um, so, yeah, it's awesome. Um, but anyways, back to the, the, the question. Do I think it takes a romance out? Your internet reception says otherwise. Oh, coming from you, who's dropped out about 30 times. He loves throwing shade, doesn't he? What? Mate, I, 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 I set it up myself and I've got it in a spot where it hits a black spot sometimes. So I've got to actually get it set up properly. But to answer the question, if, it, if my internet allows me, I don't think it takes the romance out of it as long as you don't abuse it. You know, if you're if you're on a hunt, you know, I spoke to, I spoke about this with Dodge when I got back from the hunt, and he's saying like he's had, you know, we have people that are constantly on it and just texting just to text during the hunt. You know, it's um, yeah, I think that's I think that's silly. I think that can definitely take the romance out of it, and you know, the whole fact that you are out there in the wilderness, you should be enjoying what's there. For me, it it doesn't, and it didn't. Because I would only turn it on when I'm back at camp and just laying in the tent or something and just check in, checking how my daughter is and so on and so forth and see how my brothers are going or stuff like that. So part of the allure of wilderness and the reason 
it is the wilderness is because not everyone can access it. And if you've got everyone out there accessing it whilst on their phone and still talking to home, it's yeah, like Jason was saying, I told him a story. I had one guy in camp and he was just sitting there quietly and he's like, woohoo, my kid just scored a goal at soccer. Like we're in the middle of nowhere shooting moose. That's what he's, you know, focused on. I understand touching base with home, but he was getting a play-by-play on this game. It wasn't, uh, yeah, I know it's important to keep in touch with home, but at that level, I think it's definitely losing some romance. Yeah, definitely. In saying that, I would buy an iPhone if that was the case. <laughs> no, you definitely can. It just, get, I guess it depends on anything, you know. It's it's no different to going to the beach and, and sitting, you know, going to the, going and doing a walk and have, sitting on the beach looking off a cliff or something and, sitting on your iPhone and looking at what's going on on social media, liking somebody's photo of what's in front of you. You know, like <laughs> I'd say most of the population do that these days where they go on and like photos of things that look pretty while they've got something that's looking pretty in a sunset right in front of them, let's say. So, yeah, I guess if it's abused, I, I this is the first time I've ever taken an inReach. I used to have a sat phone, or we still have it, that I used to use um, where it was just it was texting and, and phone calls and stuff like that. I liked it. I liked it when I was especially, you know, after three days of hanging around people that you can't even talk to uh, because there's the language barrier there. It was nice to just be able to message someone and go, hey, how you going? Yeah, so that was good. How hard is that language barrier? I mean, I've done a little bit of traveling and my wife makes fun of me a lot because I I like to be in control and I like to plan things out and I uh, I was talking to Dodge about it today actually and telling him when I went to Montreal in Canada and I really struggled because I can't speak French and you know the the main language in Montreal is French and it was really really difficult and just feeling that out of the comfort zone, not being able to communicate. Like we couldn't even get a taxi. So how hard is it when you're traveling and you've got, you know, you just said it's it's hard to communicate, but does that make an, a really like another element that makes it so much more difficult on the hunt? Um, it can make it difficult on the hunt when it comes to that rush at the end, you need to shoot this animal type of thing. That's the only time it became difficult. In between that, the to and from camp in camp sitting around camp you get by you know it's it definitely makes it more difficult when it comes to that you know here's an animal shoot this animal you know and you're trying to get an opinion on an animal like one of the things i forgot to touch on before was not only was he asking me about distance but he was also asking me about what size animal i want to shoot and he would write and we're using calculator a lot so he would say he would write 100 which is 100 centimeters good you know and, and so Things like that. So it can be difficult. I wouldn't say it was anything to worry about. Just be prepared, go in and have fun and just enjoy it. Um, I guess if you're someone who maybe always needs to be in control with those type of things, you may find it hard. But where, you know, me and my brothers and I've always been someone that just, whatever, I don't fuss about things like that. You know, in a country, I'll just get by. And, sorry, talking about tech, can I add? Once I was in Bishkek, I downloaded an app, the Google Translate app. That thing is awesome. I wish I had it on the hunt. I only downloaded it once I got in Bishkek. And you can actually use it as a camera. All right, I might be telling you something you know already, but for me, this is all new and amazing and wonderful. But you turn the camera on and it translates a menu. You just point it over the menu and it translates it from what was Russian to English instantly. 
live. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh, mate. I was, I was, it was awesome. Like, you know, obviously the translations are a little bit lost, but you expect that. But, you know, you can also, you don't need internet for it because you can download the language. So you, I could have been on that hunt and while we were sitting there, I could have asked maybe a few more questions that I would have liked to have known and just general questions like, are you married? Do you have any kids? Just normal camp talk. So that's a big one. If you go to a place like this, download that Google Translate app, download the language that they use in that country. And at least then you can just have some conversation at camp instead of just sitting there saying, good, good, <laughs> like I was doing. Have you ever done a hunt on your own? Like I know you obviously it's already coming across to me and we've never met, but it already seems that you go on a lot with your brothers. Have you ever gone on one on your own? Because I imagine if you're sitting in camp and it's a different language on your own, that's a totally di different atmosphere. At least you had your brothers there to you know, have a chat about, have a joke and things like that? Well, no. I haven't really done one on my own without didn't speak English because even the Czech Republic, the guy spoke great English. But in this hunt, I shot my animal on the – so I was with these guys day one. Day two, we rode out. Day three, I was at base camp on my own. And day four in the afternoon, my brothers came. So I was four days without anybody being able to sort of speak English to me. Um so that was the only, the only experience. And look, I, I was okay, you know. I was, luckily, my brothers took books. I ended up grabbing a, one of my brother's books out of his room. He didn't take it up to camp with him, but out of his room. And I started that book at 6 p.m. that one afternoon. And by 10 a.m. the next morning, I was finished it. So, I, you know, and I don't usually read a lot of books and especially a book that quick. So there was nothing else to do. So that was good. But that was the only – honestly, this was the only real time where I was like three, four days without – really been able to communicate with people i spoke to i've spoken to both you and daniel since you came back and i can't remember who it was that told me the story about what michael did to kill some time in camp was that you jason or was it oh okay yeah what michael did that was actually hilarious <laughs> i think i told you about that but tell us about that yeah so when michael shot his animal they came back to camp and then daniel went off and uh, went on his hunt so then one of michael's guides went on his horse somewhere Michael thinks he may have gone to actually get um, get reception on his phone to call home or something. And then the other guy went for a sleep. So Michael's sitting in camp and Michael's not a fan of having a siesta. And he was uh, he was a bit bored. So he went into the – they had a little bit of a fire going. He went into the, the meat bag where they had all Michael's Ibex um, meat in there. And he ended up taking the tenderloins out. And he ended up cooking all, a heap of the tenderloins for himself on a stick over the fire and he was pissing himself laughing because he was thinking these guys are going to get back to their families and say to the missus, don't worry, I left you the best part, the tenderloin. <laughs> They're all going to be gone because Michael sat there at camp eating them all. So <laughs> that was a good way to get rid of a bit of time. Did you eat it? What did it Mate, taste like? Uh, you know, that's it's one of those questions that I, I always sort of uh, – it's a hard one to answer. You know, what, is, what does something taste like? Like I've eaten a lot of – I've eaten a lot of weird and wonderful things um, around the world. I've eaten, you know, like maybe a lot of people have eaten bear. I've eaten yak. I've ate rat in Vietnam. I've eaten snake. I've eaten. I, I don't think a lot of people have eaten bear, especially when we're talking to Australians. Well, I, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I ate bear in Russia and we ate a lot of bear in Russia, actually, and, and, and bear was awesome. What does Ibex taste like, though? Um, it's. I don't know. Like Even just from a texture point of view. Well, we had it a few ways. They salted a lot. So we had it salted in stews, but then we had it like fresh in a stew as well. Oh, if I had to say anything, it was like um, a mixture. It's not goaty as in 
you know, when you have goat and it smells like goat, it's not like that. I would say it's a mixture between maybe lamb and venison if I had to pick something. Not gamey like venison, not as tender as lamb, but it was it was definitely nice. I would eat it. I, I, I would I would eat it if I had more access to it. Not as good as bull tar or as tar, I should say. Tar is probably up there as one of the best that I've had. What's your favourite way to cook game meat if you're a venison? You know, you've got farm your own there. Do you ever have you ever shot one of those or are you eating the stuff you're killing? Funny enough, I've never even killed any of my own deer because my freezer, lucky I've been fortunate enough to always have a freezer full of uh, wild shot venison. How, how do I like, you know, I, I like my venison cooked really simple. I, I've i cooked it in all different and wonderful ways. I'll tell you my simple way and I'll tell you my exotic type of way that I like to uh, do venison. My simple way is just cut them in one set, like if, you, if you've got a backstrap, Cut them in maybe one, maximum two centimetre thick strips, salt, pepper, in a fry pan, really quick, nice medium rare in the middle, super tender, seals in all the juice and done. Um, I find that for me, that is a lot more consistent and a better way also to introduce people to venison. I find that too many people try to introduce people to venison with a whole backstrap done in the oven, seed, and they get it wrong. It's either too under, too over, ends up chewy. So that's a, I find that my easy way. I, my, if you want to put more different exotic way, get a piece of backstrap, put it in the freezer, make sure it's frozen, take it out, cut it really super thin in a meat slicer when it's raw, uncooked, and then get truffle oil, capers, red onion, salt, pepper, and eat it raw, like a carpaccio like type of thing. It is one of the best ways to eat venison. That sounds absolutely delicious. I love oh, mate, it's, it's one of my favourite things. So, um, no, that sounds really good. It's similar to the way I like to cook venison. I I like to bash the back strap and just make it really thin, salt and pepper, bit of flour on it, and then just, you know, a quick flash fry and some butter. Yep. And I don't think I've ever had anyone not like it, even people that go, they're not a fan of game mm-hmm. meat. They eat it and they just froth on it. They love it. Yeah, because it can it can be gamey, you know. And my old man loves getting venison off us to make some mixes. Previously mentioned, I'm heading up to Jason's place to do some fencing, and I can't wait to taste that for lunch one day. Thanks, Jason, for offering. But I look forward to that. And also, Matt, how many backstraps have you cooked from deer you haven't shot? Before we do that, mate. Um, again, we're back to the food, Jason. I don't know if you've heard this. But- Hashtag solo eater. He likens himself to Remy Warren, and instead of solo hunter, he's the solo eater. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so it doesn't it doesn't surprise me he's already hitting you up for Mate, food. It looks like it, it looks it looks to me like Remy Warren. What's his name? Remy Warren. He's been out in a good paddock at the moment. <laughs> well, well, he's hitting you up for food. So I mean, he's not even there to do work, and he's hitting you up. Mate, for lunch. I'd be happy to feed the bloke, but let me just. Uh, Put this on record. I spoke to Dodge in around February this year about doing fencing at my house, and he said April, May, the latest. What are we in now? September, and I'm here still waiting. I didn't give you a year, <laughs> and now <laughs> I spoke to him probably two months ago, and he goes May, October, and now in this podcast, I've just heard for the first time, maybe still a couple months. <laughs> Lucky you're a good bloke. Yeah, well, until all my deer start jumping out of the fences. Yeah, well, I'll be waiting on the other side. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Me too. 
There's one story your brother asked me to ask you about too. What's that? Uh, Mordor, New Zealand. Ah, okay. When it comes to, to the hunt in Kyrgyzstan, I wouldn't say it was necessarily uh, the hardest hunt I've been on. I think New Zealand is probably what I've experienced and seen. A lot of people you talk to, maybe some of the harder hunts that you would do, especially when you do them on your own, which we're fortunate to have that opportunity to do. I think New Zealand has had the, the two the two hunts that I would say are those, oh, what's the best way to put them? They're the, 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 the benchmark type of things. You know, it's it's those those type of hunts where you you push your body to a certain limit where now you go, okay, well, that's a new benchmark. I know that I can do that. So the next time you're walking in Victoria and you're buggered, you go, well, I've done this hunt in New Zealand before. This is nothing. And New Zealand is two of those instances, one of those which uh, my, my brother Daniel mentioned to you, Dodge, was uh, what we called Mordor. We got dropped off in this spot. Long story short, I shot a chamois bark, a nice bark, and um, – it, it was it was it was super rushed because the chopper pilot one of the chopper pilots we use over there he's phenomenal and but like a lot of pilots up there they they see everything from the air and everything looks really achievable from the air it's not only until your feet are on the ground that you realize that's not as easy as what he said it may be so he dropped off into this area anyways got in got out shot an animal but on the way out we had to walk back to where we were staying in a hut. And a walk that he said allow yourself maybe three hours for took us well over eight, nine hours. And it, the reason why we called it Mordor was we were literally just walking over rocks that from the air looked like pebbles, but from when your feet were on the ground, they were like little hills of just rocks. And we were literally just climbing hills of rocks up and down nonstop. And it was one of the most... I wouldn't say physically demanding, but mentally demanding because it was never ending. It was just like walking around in circles. You know, you see those movies where they run away for an hour and they realize they're back to where they started. That's what it felt like. And um, we got back. My brother, Michael, my uncle got sent, got dropped off in another area and they got back to the to camp and one of them lost a radio and so on the way back they couldn't get in contact with us and they were worrying and we we even got to the point where we couldn't even find the hut and i had it marked and it should have been just there but it wasn't and we're walking around in circles for a little bit trying to figure out where this hut was and it was just one of those hunts that was really mentally draining it was never ending but i shot a chamois buck out of it so i was happy (laughs) One thing I wanted to ask you, so we've hunted Czech, hunted Texas, Kirk, Australia, et cetera, et cetera. What camo are you using as a pattern? Because that, that's a lot of different environments. Like that New Zealand, you're talking about there in the scree and things like that in the thick greenery. What are you running camo-wise that works for all those? I've always just used Kuyu. I like Kuyu. I, uh, I'm not sponsored by Kuyu. I I you know, I, 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 anything like that. Um, I don't really geek out too much on different camos for different environments. I'll be honest with you. I, I am a firm believer that I, I, I personally think that, you know, your, your, the right camo is maybe 10%, not even that, 5% of your success. The wind, uh, has got a lot more to do with it. And some people worry too much about camo and then forget that the wind's in, on their neck and that's why they're spooking all these animals. You know, lots of people have shot great animals in just wearing jeans and a and a and a green shirt. So, 
Um, I don't geek out too much on camo, to be honest. I'm, I, I like Kuyu just because I know their sizing. I've always bought their stuff and they've always been good to us in regards to, you know, getting gear over here. So, yeah, I just run the Kuyu, the – I don't even know what, what's the camo called, the old school green and white one, uh, not the brown one. I think it's Verde. Verde. Verde, Verde, yep. I just I always buy that uh, just because I've already got all that, so I'll buy that. Um, I think for me, you know, and I'm not saying this is from experience or I'm not saying that this is right, but for me, as I said, with the whole camo thing, I think the only time I would probably really consider different camo when I go overseas would be if you hunt late season Ibex and stuff like that, they really push you to make sure you have white um, to really blend in with the snow, and that makes a lot of sense, um, white and white. You know, it's 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 got to work. You know, if you're crawling across snow and, you've, and you're all white on the back, well, you know, I, I would imagine that would work. If you've seen the movie Shooter with Mark Wahlberg, one of the end scenes where they're he's all in white, and yeah, it's uh, it's obviously you know <laughs> that's that's a pretty good movie, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine that would work. Uh, but yeah, mate, Dodge, just to answer your question, pretty much, I wear the same thing everywhere. Yeah, I I can second that. I been wearing QU for some time now and a lot of it has to do with just their high technical gear. So from a mountain hunting point of view, yeah, the camo is one thing, but if you've got gear that'll the seams will stay strong, the waterproofing lasts, the gaiters staying strong, things like that are more definitely more something I take into account when I'm buying gear from a mountain hunting point of view. And I'm assuming that's the same with you if you're, you know, still running their gear. You've tested it in some rough conditions, have you had anything fail? I I wouldn't say I've, had, I've really had any gear fail. I think it's a lot of it just uh, learning what gear is suited to you is more important. What you know, it's all about with a lot of these. You know, it's 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 gone away from the whole heavy jacket, heavy this, heavy that. So obviously, layering systems, as uh, most of us would understand. I think it's just a matter of just working out what works for you. You know what I mean? Whether you, whether you do suffer from the cold, whether you don't, whether you're more comfortable being a little bit cold or a little bit hot. You know, I'm the sort of person where even if I'm a little bit cold, I'd rather not wear uh, thermal bottoms because I know I'm going to get hot. I'd rather deal with the cold throughout the day than get hot. Whereas my brother Michael, he would rather be hot and he does not want to feel cold. So it's I think it's important just to know what you want to do and like to do. Do you have any tips for new hunters or inexperienced hunters? Um, is there one thing that really stands out along your journey that if you could go back in time when you were, you know, wee little hunter, maybe not because you're a tall man, but w- you would apply for yourself or tell a younger version of yourself, do this? I think the advice I would give to hunters is, the number one advice I give to people when they ask me about, I want to start spearfishing, and that's join a club. Joining a club when spearfishing and being active in a club, and, and when I say a club, you know, and I'm not trying to be political in any way, but I'm not saying join the SSAA. I'm saying join an active hunting club. And it's the same with spearfishing, you know, like when you when I started spearfishing, being active in a club, going out and going diving with, Australian spearfishing champions, people who've represented the country in spearfishing and people who have been diving for 30 years, you learn so much and so much faster. Now, hunting's different to spearfishing in that regard. Everybody can spearfish where anybody can spearfish. There's no private spearfishing zones. So that's a, that's a bit of a difference, you know, and 
it's like one of those discussions I've had with a few people, you know, what makes a good – I know what makes a good spear fisherman because you can test it. I still don't know what makes a good hunter because just because you've got access to 10 amazing properties, it doesn't make you a good hunter. So, but in spear fishing, I always found that the good spear fishermen have always got something to teach you because you can tell they're good spear fishermen. Where in hunting, it's a bit different. But to go back to what my advice would be, and which was join a club, it's because as a new person, you may not get somebody to go and help you shoot a deer straight away, but you're going to learn a lot quicker than what you would by taking a lot of bad advice on social media or just trying to watch YouTube and work things out like that. So it's definitely for me would be join a club, an active club. So you said there you can't judge, it's hard to judge a hunter. And I think I agree agree with that. And my way that I would say to judge a good hunter is to put them in a different area with a different species they haven't hunted and see how they go. And my example of that is I quite often get asked, how do you hunt moose when you don't have moose in Australia? So I've been sent over to Canada, middle of nowhere, and I've picked up a job guiding moose. And I'm guiding these people who are on a hunt and I've never seen a moose and I'm supposed to guide them on a hunt and find one. And I think that comes down to, I'm not saying I'm a good hunter, but I just you look for the same things. And it's um, definitely something you've probably seen when you're overseas. You know, you're looking for the same, the same traits. Animals generally have similar traits in different scenarios, but I find the deer here that I hunt act very similar to the moose over there that I hunt. They need water. They need food. They need cover. They use systems. They take the shortest route possible. It's um, yeah, use those things. I don't. I can't comment on your spearfishing. How you can judge that? I didn't even know there was worldwide spearfishing competitions, but I never thought about it. So, Dodge, you mentioned moose, and we've got a bit of a segment on this, which is that's Media Watch. So, in news over the last couple of weeks. Um, I'm going to, it's not Australian, but I'm going to throw over to Colorado where a bow hunter was severely injured by a moose and that obviously put them in hospital and he's in critical condition and and thoughts and prayers are with him, you know, fighting for his life. But uh, I just wanted to see if you guys had any close calls. Dodge. The only time I've had a close call... On the moose front, uh, we were sitting on the side of a mountain. I was with a hunter, Texas Ted, we'll call him, and he. You know, we, we were under a little tarp. It was raining reasonably heavy, and I was sitting with a little Dutch Dutch fella. He was the assistant guide on this one, and we were calling in the moose. Now, for such a huge animal, they move silently through the bush, and this thing walked down a trail, I'm going to say 25 metres, you guys can do the maths on that if you need to. But it snuck up down beside us and it was square with us at 25 metres, looked at us and then just kept walking down the trail. Now, we looked at that moose. It knew we were there straight past us. We looked at that bull for probably three hours trying to convince ourselves it was legal. It wasn't. It might have been, but it wasn't convincing and he went home without shooting a moose on that trip, but it stayed at around 150, 200 yards. There you go. I crossed over again. And it just, I've got photos of it and it, it 
just stood there and we we just talked about ways of, you know, what do we do if we shoot it and it's wrong? And we just couldn't do it. It was like, I think it was illegal by about a quarter inch in one of the points. And that's all it was. But no, my only real, and it wasn't a dangerous encounter. definitely could have been. We were peak moose rut and we were, you know, scraping trees and whatnot to try and call these things in. We were just lucky this one didn't want to bar us. But have you had any, you talked about your red deer in the pens and things, Jace. Have you had any close encounters on the dangerous side with big game? Yes. One of the, you asked me about one of the best experience hunts I've ever had before. And I didn't actually um, bring this one up, but hunting uh, buffalo in Arnhem Land with my two brothers as well was probably one of the best experiences. We were with a really good mate of mine, Aaron, up there who lives up that way, top bloke, took us out. Great spear fisherman, great family. He's his uh, him and his wife Jade and his kids all get into the hunting and fishing. His you know, son Fraser is an absolute beast when it comes to spear fishing. And it was his, his birthday only today. I don't, I can't remember how old he is, but I don't know. Sorry, mate, if I'm wrong, but somewhere, but maybe eleven or twelve or something, thirteen, somewhere around there. But anyway, so we went up and did a trip like that. And my brother Michael shot a shot a buffalo a few times. Um, awesome buff albino thing really cool really cool animal and we ran out of ammo (laughs) (laughs) um, so me michael and daniel sat off this termite mound thing and sorry let me go back a step me daniel daniel ran back to the car to get more ammo this thing put its head down and ran at us and we all had to turn around and run real quick away from it and it stopped luckily. And then we sat off with our backs actually just on this termite mound, just looking at this uh, big buff, keeping a ninety without him really noticing us because he really wanted to get revenge on whoever put a bullet through him. But yeah, anyways, long story short, Daniel came back and then Michael finished him off. But that was probably one of the closest encounters that we've had to uh, something actually trying to kill us. Maybe we had more because on this same trip, my brother Daniel shot an absolute beast of a buffalo that we shot in some really questionable swampy area that a few people that we know who've hunted this area said that we're crazy for going in there because the amount of crocs that we've seen in there. But we were in, in this this area where if we got chased by a croc, we were not running out of there because we were mud up into our knees. Um, but again, one of the most amazing experiences shooting this big buffalo that went over 100 in this swamp. This swamp, pretty much it was a swamp that you know in in the right time of year it is literally just all underwater so hold on what was it that's not bad internet that's my brain trying to remember what i was going to ask you oh god almighty (laughs) it's so hard to work with him jason i'm back (laughs) so jace you mentioned earlier as soon as you come back from a trip you're booking the next one you just got back from kirk what's next well we are trying to decide between a tur hunt in Azerbaijan or I really want to do Rocky Mountain Goat. So either one or two, with maybe an Africa in between. I'm not too fussed about Africa for now. The only reason why I would like to do Africa is I would like to do Africa with my dad and my dad's in his mid-60s and he, I would like to actually see him do a hunt with us and him shoot something. So that's the only reason I'd do Africa now. For me, Africa, I can do it when I'm 50. Um, I would like to try and tick off the harder hunts, you know, 
the ones that are going to need, you know, not need because there's plenty of 60-year-olds that still shoot Rocky Mountain Goat and stuff like that. But I think those the harder hunts would be great to do while we're a bit younger. Um, so as a Bajan for Tur or Rocky Mountain Goat would be the two on my list. But saying that as well, next year we're going to the U.S., and taking, we want to take all the family over and do Disney World and all that sort of stuff. So we're probably going to, well, I'm in the middle of trying to organize a, um, a quick getaway while we're there with the family, maybe three or four days and either do pronghorn, mule deer or whitetail. Yeah, very nice. I think, uh, I know it's one of my dreams to get over to the States and have a uh, turkey hunt and a whitetail and, and things like that. So, um, mate, yeah. we uh, I definitely wish you all the best in organising that. So yeah, no, if uh, our listeners want to find you on the socials, mate, what are, where can they, you know, look you up? Um, I guess maybe on Instagram. Trying to remember my Instagram name now. <laughs> Maybe we'll we'll put a link on our socials for you guys, so if, yeah. uh, <laughs> and they can find you that way. That makes it a bit easier. I, I think it's actually Huffy underscore Montez M O N T E S. I think they'll find me there. Huffy H. I'm pretty sure it's with an underscore H U double F Y underscore M O N T E S. Yeah, so you can see plenty of slap videos there. You can see a few farming stuff, some dead animals and some dead fish in between as well. Yeah, fantastic. Mate, finally, before we wrap up, biggest fish you've shot? Um, biggest fish, I'd say, well, I've I've shot GT, GT that was, uh, I'd say the biggest fish was maybe like a 30-odd kilo GT, but probably one of my best fish would be maybe a 28-kilo Mulloway Jewfish. I shot a 28-kilo Jewfish at, of all places, South Maroubra. I've actually shot three jewfish there, but South Maroubra for all those Sydney people. Don't mind saying that spot because everyone can rush there. You probably will never see one. But, yeah, I'd probably say that was one of my most memorable fish. And, I mean, around Sydney is tough spearfishing. Yeah. It, uh, it does get hammered. Like uh, we talk about all state forests around Sydney, you know, you really have to go over a couple of different mountain ranges to to get some forest that isn't absolutely hammered. So, it, yeah. It's the same as spearfishing, especially when you don't need any licenses or anything to get a uh, Hawaiian sling, as Dodge likes to throw out, or <laughs> actual proper spearfishing gear, but uh, we'll leave that one alone. Just to clarify, that is the only term I know about spearfishing. Jason, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. It uh, was fantastic to hear about your hunt, and congratulations on it being a successful one. Uh, Dodge, you got anything to add? Just that... Hawaiian sling is the only term I know about spearfishing, and you guys throw it away like I've learnt nothing. Learnt nothing. I'm on this podcast to learn things and then use. You haven't learned a thing, mate. A Hawaiian sling. Listen, you're not Kimmy Werner. You're not Remy Warren. We call it a we call it a spear gun here, mate. Uh, well, feel free to take me out and teach me more. You wouldn't be able to buy a spear gun because uh, you know they're uh, when you buy them, they're all in metric, and so he'd be so confused, he'd end up with his tiny little <laughs> reef gun and be trying to do some deep water stuff with it. But uh, yeah, mate, thank you very much again. It's been a pleasure. Uh, really interesting stuff, and I know I'm not into the international stuff, but 
every time I speak to somebody like yourself and I hear these stories, geez, it's it's really pushing me into that sort of area. So, uh, mate, really appreciate your time. Thanks again. Thanks to our listeners. And if you haven't already, jump on our website. It's uh, You'll find us at endlesspursuit.com.au and that has all our links and um, to our socials and plenty of stuff on there as well as the current giveaway that we are doing at the moment. So if you want to be a member or try and win a membership to the Australian Hunting Club, please uh, you know jump on our socials and follow all the details there to try and win that membership. Uh, Dodge, anything before we go, mate? Just uh, thanks for coming on, Jace. Great to chat to you and look forward to eating some food you cook for us when we do your fence in February. <laughs> now it's February. Hashtag solar eater. Uh, no, that's it, guys. Have a great night. Yeah, cheers. I appreciate it, fellas. Thanks for being here, Jason. Thanks for listening, guys, and we'll catch you next time. Bye for now. If you have a question for the team, shoot us an email. Our email address is the endless pursuit podcast at gmail.com alternatively jump on our social media facebook and twitter you can find us by using the at hunting journeys and instagram find us on endless underscore pursuit underscore podcast thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time